I want to begin by telling you a personal story, but first I need to give you two pieces of background so that the story will make some sense. Now first, some of you may know of a ministry called Celebrate Recovery, called CR for short. It is a Christian 12-step program. It's offered at churches around the world, and its purpose is to help followers of Jesus overcome the addictions and habitual sins that sometimes weigh believers down. The second thing, for some 20 years, I was on the ministry staff of a church in Southern California, and my role was sort of like that of a utility fielder in baseball, where you play whatever position the coach assigns you to. And so during my tenure at that church, I was the Christian education pastor in charge of Sunday school. I was the discipleship pastor in charge of small groups. I was the executive pastor in charge of the staff and the budget, and I was a member of the preaching team. Lots of different roles. And I loved all those different roles until Celebrate Recovery showed up at our church. And that's where the personal story begins. One of my ministry colleagues on staff had started the CR program at our church and it was incredibly successful at helping believers grow and change. And he ran that ministry for several years, but then he moved on to another church. So guess what happened? The lead pastor grabbed me, the utility fielder, said, Bruce, you now need to oversee Celebrate Recovery. And I didn't want to do it. And why is that? It's because the normal people in our church (laughs) looked down on the Celebrate Recovery people. Those people, they were the ones with issues. Oh, we were glad they were in the church and getting help, but, but they weren't like us. We had our act together, they didn't. And I confess that I shared that attitude that many people in our church had. And I didn't want to be labeled as one of those people. I didn't want church members thinking that that I had some hidden issue that was now coming to light. And why was it that I reacted that way? There's a one-word answer. Pride. Pride. And here's the reality whether or not I had an issue that needed to be dealt with through the CR program, we've all got issues, right? We all have areas of life where we fall short. We all have areas of life where we need to grow. And it is not wise nor healthy to pretend otherwise. And the people in CR needed my support and I realized I could encourage them by walking with them and by learning to be more honest about my own struggles and challenges and weaknesses. And so I embraced my new role, and when it was announced to the church, oh, a few people's eyebrows went up. (laughs) I could tell they were wondering, oh, I wonder what Bruce's issue is. Hmm. (laughs) Little jolt to the ego, little shot to the pride. I decided none of that mattered. What mattered was serving the people in that ministry as I'd been asked to do. And so for the next few years, I walked alongside the volunteer leadership of CR, and God used those people to change me. 
I thought I was there to help them. <laughs> oh, I helped them, but oh, they helped me. All of those brothers and sisters had been broken by life in some way. And they had reached the point where they were willing to humble themselves. They were willing to admit to God and to other believers, I need help and I can't do this alone. We all need people in our lives we can say that to. I've got a, people, a few people in my life that I know well and I trust that I can go to and say, I got a problem. I need your help and I need God's help. I can't do this alone. It takes humility to do that. It's not easy, but oh, it's so necessary. Is there one person or a couple of people in your life that you can do that with. We can take off the mask and just be honest and let another believer walk beside you and help carry that load. That's what I learned from the people in CR. When I left that church to move to Oregon, my overriding thought was this. If other Christians could be at least as half as honest and half as humble as the people I walked with in CR, the Church of Jesus Christ would be a much healthier place. Because what I saw in that group was the beauty, the beauty of humility. A beauty that cultivates a richer life of faith and continually transforms us so that we can become more like Jesus in thought, word, deed, and character. And isn't that what we all want? Isn't that our goal? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And in just a minute, we're going to dive into the book of Romans and learn about the beauty of humility from the Apostle Paul. Before we do, though, you need to know why, why I was prompted by God to offer this message. Sometimes, when Mike or I preach, the sermon is intended to function like an antibiotic. In other words, there's something wrong in our lives and we need some spiritual medicine to be healed. Other messages are like probiotics. We need them for our spiritual protection. They make us stronger and they help to prevent problems. Today's message is not an antibiotic. It's a probiotic. You see, we're not a particularly prideful church for which I'm deeply grateful. So this sermon is not offered as a cure for a problem, but a protective measure to help us, to help us flourish as followers of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's turn to the book of Romans. And I encourage you to listen to the small, still voice of the Holy Spirit and see how he might take these words of truth and apply them to your life to help guard you against the sneakiness of pride so that Christ-like humility can flourish in your life. Chapter 12, starting with verses 1 to 3, where we see that humility is an integral part of faith. The apostle Paul writes and says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, I added the word and sisters because the word in the Greek means both, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, so Paul is writing these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's directing them to believers who are living in the heart of the Roman Empire. And it's important to ask, why does God prompt Paul to address the topic of humility with that particular group? It's because Rome was built on a pride-driven culture. If you were a man from your earliest days, you were taught to boast about your accomplishments and your income and your status. And if you were a woman, you you were taught to call attention to your beauty or your clothing or how nice your home was. Your goal was to elevate yourself above others because the Romans despised humility. And this means that when Romans started becoming Christians, they brought a lot of cultural baggage with them. And therefore, Paul now has to help them understand a new way of being and a new way of living. And they need to learn that pride is ugly because it's self-centered. Pride is ugly because it's demeaning to others, it's disrespectful to others. Pride is divisive. And for those reasons and so many more, pride is not the way of Jesus. And so here in this passage, Paul sets out to help Roman believers turn away from the values of their culture and grasp the beauty, the beauty of Christ-like humility. And guess what? You and I have some cultural baggage too. Whether we recognize it or not, the U.S. is a pride-driven culture. And in our case, it often manifests itself as incredible self-centeredness. where We make every issue and everything about us. And so we can't separate ourselves and distance ourselves from these words that Paul writes to the ancient Romans. These words apply to us as well. Now, one of the things that we're going to see throughout this passage is that most of what Paul talks about has implications for humility, even when he doesn't use that precise word. So, for example, he starts talking about worship. But worship, obviously, is a profound act of humility. When you and I offer our praise to the God of heaven and earth, when we confess our sins to him, when we pray and ask God to help us and comfort us, we are worshiping and our worship reminds us that we do not have total control over our own lives. Worship is a rich and beautiful expression of humility. And worship is the beginning of a progression which Paul is describing here in these verses. And worship is the starting point because it's not a one-time act. It's an ongoing part of daily life. Unlike the ancient Jews 
who sacrificed the dead animals as an expression of worship, we are invited to offer our very own lives as worship. And so to be a living sacrifice is to acknowledge every day our utter dependence on God. And when we choose to live in that way, that kind of humble living draws us ever closer to the Heavenly Father. It enables us to hear and embrace the truth that he gives us through the scriptures. And then we increasingly understand how to make better, wiser, more godly decisions, which also is what Paul's talking about here. And we come to the point where we find that we would rather do the will of God than pursue our own selfish purposes. That process makes us ever more humble. And so the result is, we don't think too highly of ourselves, which Paul says we shouldn't be doing, which means we don't boast and brag and we don't do things for self-centered reasons. Because of our love for God and because of his gracious care for us, our goal each day is to honor him with our lives. That is beautiful humility in action. And it's all an expression of faith. We can't do any of that if we're prideful people. Humility and faith are inextricably linked. And so in light of what Paul writes here in these opening verses of this passage, I find myself asking a question. Where am I in this progression toward a more humble, more faithful life? That's a question I want to keep asking continually because if I focus on that, then I will not fall back into pride. Whenever I let pride creep in and rear its head, it erodes my faith because pride is focused on me. Humility always is an expression of faith because it deepens my trust in God. And that's true for me. And it's true for you. Where are you in this progression toward a more humble, more faithful life? But Paul wants us to know that it's not just about me and it's not just about you. It's about us. And so in the next section, he turns his attention to the us, to the church. And he wants us to see that humility in our life together just makes good common sense. Let's continue on in verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, right? He's talking about our human body there. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Now he's talking about the church and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul reminds us that the human body has many parts and they all have different functions. And then he says that the body of Christ, the church, is structured the same way. Lots of parts. (laughs) Many different functions. 
And every one of them is vital to the health of the whole. And now as we consider this list of spiritual gifts given to the church family, which by the way is an exhaustive, Paul gives us other lists in other places, but from this list there's three things that should be obvious. First, no one individual is going to have all those gifts. Which second means we therefore should value other people for the gifts God has given them. And third, God gives us these gifts to enrich our life together, not to show off or impress people. And so in light of those facts, what reason would we ever have to be prideful? I mean, a little humility towards each other just makes sense. There's nobody here who can lead the band and play all the instruments, right? We need each other. And I'm often asked, what does that relational humility look like in practice? Well, here's an example. In my role as a pastor, I am one of the leaders here in this congregation. I'm not the primary leader. That role belongs to Mike. And Mike and I have some overlapping spiritual gifts and some different gifts, which means then as colleagues, we can complement each other in the ongoing work of the church. We can discern how and when to defer to each other based on our distinctive abilities. And that process of deferring to each other involves humility. Mike and I obviously aren't the sole leaders because we have other leaders called elders. They serve as the spiritual guardians of our congregation. They also have some overlapping gifts and some different gifts. So they too can complement one another in the work of the church. And then the pastors and the elders must learn how to defer to each other based on the distinctive gifts of that leadership team. And that give and take, that deference one to another. It's just humility in action. But that's not all. We have volunteers in this church who head up many different ministries, and they do so because of their gifts. And when they're acting as leaders, people within those ministries need to become willing followers. And this leads to some interesting dynamics. Here's just one example. Many of you know Cody Kessler, who leads our periodic church work days. And when those events happen, guess who's in charge? Not the pastors, not the elders. Cody's in charge. And that's a day when we as church leaders show up and we become followers. Leading and following. And then we just had a vivid display of this kind of humility with our music team. They came up and opened our service using their musical gifts to lead us into the presence of God. They were leading and we were following. And then what did they do? They went and had a seat. And then they listened to whoever's preaching and in that time they become followers. You see, it's fascinating to realize that based on our different gifts, many of us will lead and follow at different times. And when we do so, when we can freely and comfortably move back and forth between those distinctive roles without our ego getting in the way, that's humility and action. And it is so beautiful to watch. Because that's how God has structured his church. That's how he wants us to be together. And we need to be careful, though. Because pride, oh, pride is so insidious. (laughs) And it can very slyly worm its way into our attitudes and actions, prompting us to exalt ourselves ahead of others. 
and to rely on ourselves more than God. And if we want to embrace a sensible humility, we need to remember what Paul said back in verse 3. We need to think of ourselves with sober judgment. We don't think of ourselves too highly, Paul says. But the implication is we also don't think of ourselves too lowly. And so we don't run ourselves down with false humility. We don't put our spiritual gifts on the metaphorical shelf and leave them unused. Instead, we use our gifts wisely and humbly in the way God intends. And when we use our gifts, we don't focus on ourselves. We focus on God and we focus on God's people because that's why we have the gifts in the first place. And so here's a great question for each of us to regularly consider. How am I using my gifts to help build up the family of God? Now, to this point in our passage, Paul's helped us see humility through the lens of faith and through the lens of common sense. And when followers of Jesus embrace that beautiful humility and he becomes a consistent part of our lives, then it leads to ongoing transformation. Over time, we become more and more like Jesus in our attitudes and actions. And that's what Paul addresses next. And as I read through the final part of this passage in verses 9 to 16, I want you to notice something. Paul never uses the word humility. But everything he describes is an act of beautiful, Christ-like humility. Let's take a look. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly and sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, meaning you honor somebody else more than puff yourself up with pride. Do not be slothful in zeal. Isn't that a great word, slothful? Meaning when there's something to be done, pursue it zealously. Don't be a sloth. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Oh my goodness, do we all need hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, meaning help one another with practical, physical needs. And seek to show hospitality. Be willing to open your home to be a blessing to others. But then listen to this next part. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I have to trust God more than I trust my own wisdom. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Not some. Not just the family and friends that I like the best. As far as it depends on me and on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And listen to this, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, not your friend, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> Meaning there might be a little guilt and shame, right? But that's not why we do it. 
We do it because love must be sincere. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Humility transforms us. And I love the fact that Paul never mentions humility there, and he never mentions Jesus. But the humility of Jesus just shines through that passage. And Paul wants us to know that a humble heart enables us to truly love other people. We don't just pretend. We can love people without an agenda, without wanting something from them. We're going to love people without attempting to manipulate them. And we can actually take delight in honoring others and appreciating their successes. And we can express appreciation for their knowledge and their abilities. And it's in this area where I think sometimes many of us make a critical mistake. We engage in what Christian author John Dixon calls competency extrapolation. Here's what that means. I'm competent in this area. Therefore, I'm also competent in this area, this area, this area, and this area, right? (laughs) We think because I'm good at one thing, I'm good at many things. But the fact is we might not be good in certain areas just because we're good in one thing. And that competency extrapolation sometimes becomes a source of pride. Here's what this sometimes looks like in my life. I'm in a role where people often come to me for all kinds of counsel. I get used to dispensing advice. But if I'm not careful, I can start giving advice in areas where I'm not competent. And why would I do that? Because it's nice to be the answer man. (laughs) Right? I want people to honor me. I went to Bruce, he got some advice, hey, hey. I need to honor others who have greater knowledge. A while back, the family was together and my son-in-law asked my opinion about a political issue that was in the news and I spouted off really strongly, making pronouncements as if my, my opinion should carry the day and then he responded and it was immediately obvious that he knew way more about this issue than I did. And it was obvious that I was clearly shooting from the hip, but acting as if I was knowledgeable. And I had to backtrack. I had to admit I was ill-informed. I would apologize for my prideful attitude. And it was a reminder to me that a little humility is necessary for us to admit that we're not competent in everything. We don't have all the answers. And so when people come to me for advice, sometimes the best thing I can say is, I don't know. But you know what? I think this person over there might have better, a better answer for you. Let me refer you to somebody who can give you the wisdom you need because I don't have enough information right now to give you an intelligent answer. And it's amazing when we adopt that kind of attitude how it takes the pressure off and it enables us to better appreciate the knowledge, the skills, and the expertise of others. And when you and I can do that, it is such a beautiful way to be humble. But this kind of humility doesn't come naturally. It's a transformation that takes place in us over time as we yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our minds, in our hearts, and our souls. And as the Holy Spirit transforms us to be more humble, it does transform our relationships with family, with friends, and other followers of Jesus. But as we just saw, Paul says humility goes way beyond that. 
Humility, Christ-like humility, can do something in us that's almost hard to believe. It can transform the way we treat our enemies. Now let's be honest. Most of us probably don't pray for our enemies unless we're praying that they would be destroyed, right? (laughs) Get them, God, get them! (laughs) Paul says something entirely different here. He says that we can become so transformed in our thinking that we will bless our enemies and even care for our enemies and help meet their practical needs. There's no way we can do that on our own unless we lean on God and with his help lay aside our pride and humbly embrace God's purposes. And we need to remember that when we do that with God's help, When we bless an enemy, we are engaging in the beautiful humility of Jesus. The kind of humility that he demonstrated on the cross when hanging there in pain, bleeding, he looked down at his crucifiers and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And in moments like that, I hope we realize then that humility, biblically humility, is not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not meekness. Humility is strong. Humility is courageous. Humility is having such a strong faith and and for us to have such a strong sense of our identity in Christ that we are willing to bless even our enemies. We're willing to yield to them at key moments, willing to yield to all kinds of other people at key moments in order to fulfill God's purposes rather than our own. Christ-like humility takes faith and strength. But what this means then is humility doesn't mean we live like doormats. As we follow Jesus with his kind of humility, we can be active and passionate in the pursuit of what's right and good, and we can be driven and goal-oriented and accomplished people and still be humble about what God's doing in our lives. And when we live as humble people, in the way Paul describes her in this passage, when we live as humble people in the way Jesus intends, then we find that humility truly is beautiful. Late one night in Detroit, Michigan, in the 1930s, a young man was riding the bus home. He was sitting alone at the back of the bus minding his own business and He'd been on there for a couple of stops, and then three other young men got on. They saw him sitting alone, and they decided to harass him. So they began by verbally insulting him, but he sat quietly, and he didn't respond. Well, when he didn't do anything, they picked up the pace, and their insults got more loud and more rude and more vicious, and he just ignored them. He said nothing, and they started daring him. Oh, stop being a sissy. Be a man. Stand up. They challenged him to a fight. He ignored him and just sat there and took it until the bus reached his stop. And then he stood up and those three men realized, ooh, that guy's a lot bigger than we thought. (laughs) He was bulky, he was well-muscled and all that had been hidden behind the high seat of the bus. And that lone man walked up to them and he looked each of them in the eye, didn't say a thing, just handed each of them a small little business card. Then he 
walked past and got off the bus. The men were amazed and they looked down at the card and the card said simply, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> Those three men had just tried to bully and pick a fight with a professional boxer who just a few short weeks later would become the heavyweight champion of the world. Interesting. It was said of Joe Lewis that he could hit so hard that he could knock out a horse with one punch. So think about that. When his strength and his manhood was mocked by some thugs on a bus, it would have been so easy to defend his honor by physically retaliating. Instead, he chose to bless those who were persecuting him. He cared for them that night by not physically retaliating. Otherwise, those three men might have wound up in the hospital. And I'm sure Joe Lewis didn't feel love toward those men, but his actions toward them were loving and merciful. To the best of my knowledge, Joe Lewis was not a follower of Jesus, but in that moment, he displayed a beautiful Christ-like humility. It was an example of humanity at its best. And here's what we need to understand. A prideful person never could have done what he did in that moment because prideful people are weak and they make it all about themselves. But Joe Lewis in that moment chose the way of humility. And humble people have the strength of character to hold back. And for us as people of faith, we have even more to rely on than Joe Lewis did. We have our identity in Christ, our faith in Christ. And with that strength, we can choose the way of Jesus, the way of humility. I've spent a lot of time pondering this passage during the week, and in light of what, what we've seen here from Paul, here's what I'm gonna do in response. This week, I'm gonna spend some time and I'm gonna take a personal spiritual inventory of my life related to pride and humility. And I'm going to ask God's spirit to search my mind and my heart and my life. I'm gonna ask him to reveal any area of potential weakness where Paul's advice here in Romans can serve as a probiotic, protecting me so that pride doesn't creep into my attitudes and my actions. I want to invite you to join me in doing the same thing. Take some time this week for an inventory. And as we step into this progression, the result for me, the result for you, will be an ever-increasing, ever-flourishing life of beautiful Christ-like humility. And the more that we become like that as individuals, oh, will it transform our life together. And that's what God wants. Please pray with me. Our loving Father, we thank you for this very challenging and encouraging advice. And I pray that in the quietness of our hearts, we could be honest with you and, and honest with ourselves about those areas where we struggle with pride. Help us, Father, to replace pride with humility through the power of your Spirit. May we continually look to Jesus as our model, 
and embrace the kind of humility that, that he showed us during his life. Help us, Father, to embrace the qualities of humility described in this passage so that our lives individually and together, individually and together, would be a witness to the world that we are people of faith, that we trust you more than we trust ourselves. May that always be true of us, Father. May we be known as a vibrant community of humble, beautiful faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.